For you, the listeners of the iFreak Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the iFreak Show. Today on our panel, we have Erica Sadoon. Hey there. I'm James Zuber, and our guest today is Greg Rays from Rays Labs. So I bet Greg at AllConf where he gave a talk on you know, thinking about products that have features. But Greg, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be on the show. Um, you know, I started my company about 13, 14 years ago, and we've just uh, really grown up with the iPhone. We were certainly around thinking about products uh, before the iPhone as well. So uh, really excited to be here. Very cool. We've had another one of your employees on the show, Ben Johnson. He's been on the show, and we've enjoyed having him. So it's good to have another Raise Lab person. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're super excited with the show, and and certainly we love uh, talking to developers and uh, people who are uh, mobile enthusiasts. Uh, very cool. So when we're talking about products and features, like what's the difference between developing a product versus a feature? Well. It's it's interesting because a lot of, um, especially large engineering firms, uh, large software firms get into uh, life cycle with their products where they're always thinking about the next thing, uh, which is great, right? You're thinking about the next version, the next big release, the next thing you're going to do. And that often gets broken down into sub features and sub tasks. And especially with larger organizations where you may have dozens or even hundreds of engineers, uh, a lot of the focus starts to be on that feature work. And a lot of the purpose of why that feature is even being developed starts to get lost. Uh, um, I've certainly seen this uh, in you know larger organizations. They get um, really focused on those features, and they forget to ask the question of why their product needs to exist and what the purpose of the product is. Uh, I mean, I'm sure everyone has seen the word toolbar with uh, 20 toolbars and a thousand buttons turned on, and each of those is a feature. Uh, but then they forget that the purpose is to produce. Uh, a document. Um, and I was watching my wife just the other day, she was trying to format a book and, uh, I'm sure everyone's experienced the, you know, you, you drag the picture a little bit to the left and it jumps to the right and you drag it a little bit to the right and then it jumps underneath the text. And, uh, you know, for the 10,000 features that, that the product does, the experience and the purpose of the product starts to get lost. And so, uh, it's really trying to focus teams and engineers and designers to think about the why, not just the the atomic feature, but how these features actually are supposed to work together. Would you agree that a lot of developers suffer from what I call featureitis? I, I absolutely agree that a lot of developers suffer from featureitis, and it's it's probably even more systemic because a lot of 
um, a lot of development teams are often driven by sales organizations and uh, sales teams sometimes have trouble uh, positioning their product uh, with a clear differentiator. And so they start using things like feature matrices and saying, well, these are the 20 features we have and these are the 20 features our competitors have. And so you get into this feature war, whereas uh, properly positioning a product in the marketplace often means thinking about it in a very different way. Uh, and I think Apple was actually fantastic at doing this, that um, when uh, you know certainly Steve Jobs was introducing certain products, it was very often not about the megahertz or the gigabytes. It was much more about the story and how they position the product for uh, creatives or individuals or for productivity in a way that um, that was not really about the feature matrix. How do you discover and create and develop a mission statement for an app? So we we use a scrum methodology, an agile scrum methodology. And during the kickoff phase, we actually... Before uh, you kick off, could you explain what the scrum methodology is? Because sure. I'm not sure everybody who's listening yeah, will yeah. be familiar think, with that. Yeah, I think it's a good framework. And so uh, there are kind of uh, traditional development methodology, which is uh, often called waterfall. And in waterfall... Uh, you're doing one phase of the product, and so you may be doing kind of um, a design phase. And then when you're done with the design phase, you move on to an engineering phase. And when you're done with the engineering phase, you move on to uh, kind of a post-production or release phase. And an agile methodology um, compresses that down into shorter buckets, usually called sprints of a couple weeks. And uh, a very particular version of that uh, is is called Scrum. And so it's just a, a methodology where you're really thinking about things in two-week chunks. And when we're uh, thinking about it, we uh, try not to uh, overthink it, meaning that you're not trying to finish the product or design the entire thing. You're trying to deliver value to your customers in very small, discrete chunks. And during the beginning of that, it's really important to actually make sure that the entire team from, uh, you know, and we work with a lot of clients, uh, from the client to the engineers, to the designers, to the product managers are aligned with what the vision and mission and purpose of the product is. And so you can take a simple product like, um, you know, uh, a timer and say, you know, what is the purpose of this timer? And you could have a great timer that's general purpose or it's meant to do time tracking or it's meant to wake you up in the morning or it's meant to do any number of these things. Uh, but by getting the team to really identify who the product is for and who it's not for and what its mission and purpose is, uh, it kind of helps justify and align the entire team in terms of why the product needs to exist. And if the team is aligned, it makes it really easy to talk about features in that context. Um, so before I started my company, uh, you know, I worked at a large software company out in uh, Seattle called Microsoft, and I worked on the Windows XP operating system. And one of the things we did early on is we said, look, this product really has to serve a small number of core missions, right? And we said, um, it's going to be based on the Windows 2000 kernel. Uh, it's going to be friendly for consumers. 
uh, and it's going to be compatible with a lot of the software that people care about. And lastly, it's really going to be about photos and video. And so really every single feature that anyone wanted to work on had to somehow fit into those four buckets. And if it didn't, the feature really didn't make the cut. And so uh, a lot of the things that started to get alignment were the things that were really around those themes. Oh, this is about compatibility. Oh, this is a photo wizard or a photo printing. Oh, this is my photos or my videos. You know, And the things that didn't really align got pulled out of the product. Uh, by having a clear mission and vision, it really helps uh, the entire team make decisions about what features actually matter to the story that you're trying to tell. A lot of people say the difference between the waterfall vision-based development versus Scrum is that it's more holistic, that you're not only taking the initial vision, but your actual experience as you develop and pulling that in. Is is that how you see it? Uh, I mean, I think both methodologies can produce great products. It's just how you think about them. Um, for us, Agile allows us to pivot. And, uh, you know, traditionally a waterfall methodology, once something is designed, you don't go back in uh, the middle of the project or further on in the project and completely rethink it. And Agile really allows a little more flexibility that if you see something that's wrong or if you decide that you need to change direction. Uh, it provides for mechanisms for a product and development organization to be able to do that. Um, and so that allows you to react to iOS 11 or it allows you to react to a new iPhone or it allows you to react to other, whether it's internal or external factors that make you change your product. Um, you know, we oftentimes learn things in usability tests that we uh, designed in the early phases and we discover weren't the right things. And so Agile allows us to really rethink and reprioritize the features that we want to work on and the features that we think aren't going to be important for the product. No, I agree. It's one of the benefits of doing Agile and Scrum. And for a long time, I thought Agile and Scrum were the same thing, but they're different. Scrum is just a way of doing Agile. But the fact that you're actually delivering something within a week or two weeks means people can play with it, they can use it, and if something's not right, they can figure it out. And you mentioned this, but if you do like a waterfall, you could be bunts because you've planned everything out and you do one thing and it's not quite right, the users don't like it, you're stuck with it. Yeah, and I, by the way, uh, you know, I, I don't like um, some of the terms that are thrown around just because I think it confuses people. Uh, you know, the point of software engineering and development is to, to build awesome products and put them in the hands of users. And anything that makes that go faster is a good thing. And so when I think about uh, Agile and especially kind of that that one week, two week sprint cycle, it allows you to put a product in a real user's hand and get feedback on whether it's working or not. Uh, another methodology we've actually started using is uh, called the Google Design Sprint, uh, which very different than the Agile Scrum methodology, but it's a very short, condensed, one week methodology that allows you to go from uh, you know, information gathering and problem solving to sketching things out, prototyping, and actually seeing the results uh, from a real usability test in the in the span of five days. And so any type of tool that kind of shortens the cycle from concept to data 
I think helps you iterate on products faster. And the five-day design sprint is picking out one problem to focus on at a time? Um, it really depends. We, most typically, and, and Google has a whole, um, there's a book called Sprint in it the, that talks uh, at length about the methodology and how it works. It was developed from Google Ventures. Um, it, it typically focuses on one or a problem area or set of things that you want to discover. And so in a traditional organization, especially a large organization, um, you know, and we, we see this with a lot of our clients, they spend uh, quite literally months trying to decide a strategic direction of whether they should go, you know, should we build this app or should we go target this thing on mobile web or should we build this feature? If we build it, will people come? Uh, will we be able to monetize this thing over here? And um, the methodology really says, well, let's stop laboring over the decisions over such period, long periods of time. Let's actually get data and find out. And so in a very short amount of time, you can actually prototype it, put it in front of real users, and then get a real reaction of whether something works or not. And uh, we've used it to solve a diverse set of pro diverse set of types of problems from design to uh, like right now we're exploring machine vision image learning because there's a question of like is machine learning and image recognition sophisticated enough to solve a certain set of problems? And so in a very condensed uh, set of time, we're going to go experiment to see whether we think it can or it can't. So tell us about some of the development work that you're applying these methodologies to. Well, I think, uh, you know, we use Scrum and Agile kind of holistically across all the products that we we build. And, and as a company, we are building a lot of iPhone apps. We're building a lot of Android applications. Uh, we're starting to see uh, some Alexa skills. Uh, we're getting increasingly into uh, medical technology. And so thinking about how products can really improve lives uh, more and more. Uh, apps are starting to be connected to IoT devices, and so we're also seeing a lot of uh, internet-connected hardware and software uh, meshes going on. And oftentimes, the products that we're doing impact kind of diverse sets of um, of user bases. We, we're working on fitness technology, and we're working on products for people who have limited abilities as well. Okay, so, so getting back to like product thinking versus feature thinking. One of the cool apps you've been working on is is Blindways. Can you talk to us talk to us a little bit about what that is and how you did product versus uh, feature thinking for that? Sure. Uh, so a little bit of background. So the Perkins School for the Blind is uh, one of the country's oldest schools dedicated to uh, people who have vision impairments. I think it was the original school for Helen Keller as well. And so uh, about, uh, I want to say it was a year and a half ago, uh, they uh, started exploring a particular problem set that they didn't know if technology could solve. And they actually applied for a Google.org grant to go explore this problem and see if they could solve it deeper. And the problem in a nutshell was that uh, when uh, people who have their, uh, their site go to a bus stop, uh, you know, GPS will get them to the corner and then they use their eyes. They spot where the bus stop is and they wait for the bus. They pick it up and they're on their way. 
Whereas they were seeing that a lot of the folks in um, the visually impaired community, they could get themselves uh, to the corner where the bus stop was supposed to be, but the buses would drive right by them uh, because they weren't standing directly at the bus stop. And so the real kind of and product- And the bus drivers, they're yeah. just not trained to, they, they look for people who are looking for them. Right. That That's right. And so it was um, kind of a challenge of how do you solve, uh, and we dubbed it micro-navigation, because GPS wasn't precise enough to get someone to, you know, a two-foot radius. Um, and, you know, we started to explore um, a bunch of different technologies. I think in terms of this product specifically, it was a really good example of the product vision, right? The product vision was someone who is visually impaired is able to get themselves directly to a bus stop to the point where they are touching the bus stop pole and the bus driver sees them. Uh, there are countless features that we enumerated that could potentially help us solve this. Uh, and so we explored machine vision, we explored learning, we explored beacons, we explored, you know, equipping the buses with hardware and equipment. We explored equipping the bus stop with equipment. We ex like uh, all sorts of features and functionality, but at the end of the day, it wasn't about the features. It was about the purpose, the, what we were trying to do with the product. Um, and so we think actually think about it, a bus stop is a very low-cost, low-tech thing. It exists either as a bench or a pole. And yeah. the notion to any city of retrofitting these extremely low-cost, easy-to-repair, you know, very low-tech things with things like beacons, it's just not going to happen. I have more on that. And uh, it, it's not even that it wasn't going to happen. Uh, we actually had some separate conversations with uh, certainly the city of Boston, and um, we've had conversations. It's just that the cities move very slowly. And so the question was, how can we solve this assuming that the infrastructure isn't going to change? Or if it's going to change, it may take a long time to change. And so it was kind of a really interesting design problem. Um, and we explored a bunch of different potential solutions. I think the notion of agile allows us not to plan the entire product uh, from the get-go, we said, look, we want to make sure we're exploring a depth of solutions and we're testing those solutions with uh, real people to make sure that we're not solving the wrong thing. And so in the very early stages of the product, we actually prototyped a number of user interfaces and then we put them into voiceover and then we brought them to a number of participants at Perkins to see if they would work or not. Um, we and can you just... Remind us what the voiceover technology is, because, again, we don't want to drop the phrase without really explaining it. Yeah, I think uh, so for folks who are not familiar, the iPhone is an incredibly um, accessible device, arguably one of the, the most accessible uh, devices ever produced, uh, certainly as a phone uh, for its time. And voiceover is an accessibility feature that you can turn on. It's uh, hidden under general accessibility uh, settings. 
And if you turn it on, it allows your iPhone to speak uh, when you tap on things on the screen. Uh, just a fair bit of warning. If you do turn it on, sometimes it's a little bit of a challenge to turn it off. And so uh, just kind of know your way around it before you turn it on. But if you turn it on, and I'll try to do it here on the mic. See here. One item. Double tap to $1 open. Crossword. One new item. Cross Crossword. Audible. Travel folder, app store, calendar, down for, play music. So you can hear me scrubbing through the apps that I have installed on my phone. And so when I click on an app, it can kind of take me through the app and I can see what's going on in that product. And so, and what's interesting about voiceover for developers, there's actually a mode where you can test it while turning your entire screen off. Yeah, I actually, I got into voiceover. Well, I've been interested in accessibility for a long time, but um, a fun thing I, I do is whenever I go to the dent dentist office, I put in my headphones and I turn on voiceover and I practice because I figure I can't look at the screen anyways. And so it's been a good way to kind of discover which apps are accessible and how voiceover really works. Um, but it's an amazing technology. It allows you kind of really to use most of the apps and most of the features on your phone uh, without without having any visual perception of what's on the screen. Uh, for developers out there, it's actually a really good tool to help with automation and testing of your product as well. Because if your app is accessible, it means that it can also be scripted, it can also be debugged uh, more readily as well. And so we often see that our developers are putting in you know, voiceover capability because it helps with uh, unit testing and other aspects of the product in general as well. This episode is sponsored by Linode. Do you need a Linux server for your latest creation? Then check them out. They provide SSDs, 40 gigabit per second network connections, and top of the line hardware to run your server on. It deploys Linux in seconds from the Linode cloud and you can choose your Linux distro and node location right from the manager. They have locations in Asia, North America, and Europe and they have a sweet set of tools to make it easy to manage it. If the web interface isn't your thing, they also have an API and a command line. So definitely go check them out. They also provide two-factor authentication, IPv6, DNS manager, cloning, scaling, and everything else that you want. So definitely get the most out of your Linux node and check them out at linode.com. And check them out at devchat.tv slash linode. So how does this work if you're trying to build an app, you've got your view controller, and what do you need to do to let people know like what buttons are there, what scroll bars, or how does that work? So the nice thing is, is that most UI controls have accessibility built in, so you don't have to do too much. Uh, there are accessibility labels, uh, and so... Uh, Oftentimes, developers will just need to make sure that they are using using them. Uh, if it's not done correctly, the buttons will announce themselves as buttons uh, as opposed to what the real purpose is. And this is most frequently something we see when the button is actually an icon or the visual representation is an icon, but the the voiceover representation should be a label. And so there's a little bit of uh, tips and tricks. And I think we even have a blog post somewhere we can link to it on on some of the ways that, that folks should be thinking about this. Yeah, so Plus, every year at WWDC, Apple has accessibility seminars. 
they are deeply invested in the notion of evangelizing, that there's more than one kind of user out there, and that they want people to take advantage of all these alternative modes of interaction. So there are some really great WWDC videos from this year, from past years. There are how to do accessibility documents online. It is a wonderful area to explore just as part of any developer's toolkit. Yeah, and I've definitely found that uh, by putting in accessibility, it makes you a thoughtful uh, developer. You're really thinking about a broad set of users, which cause you to question some of your assumptions on how your product is used. Um, it's also not hard. And so if this was a, a big ask for developers, you know, that, that's certainly something different. But the majority of apps that have uh, normal view controllers, buttons, uh, tab view controllers, things like that, most of that stuff you get for free because Apple's invested a lot of time in the infrastructure and the tools to do that. Um, and that was certainly the case when we were, were building Blindways. We were able to leverage a lot of the accessibility features and the voiceover features, and then obviously take it to the next level in terms of how people interact with that product. Can you describe how a user uses Blindways, what it does for them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the product, what it does is it uh, locates the bus stops that are nearest to you. Uh, we try not to solve uh, the macro level mapping problem. We, we assume that there's a number of other uh, kind of uh, map based apps, whether it's Apple Maps or Google Maps, or, or uh, there's a couple specialized uh, apps for um, people who are visually impaired to get them to the street corner. Uh, but we really focused on the micro navigation problem. And what that means is that we, we, we assume that you're within, you know, a hundred meters, 50 meters of the bus stop. And so we explored a number of different, uh, user interfaces for getting you closer. And, uh, the product ended up being a crowdsourced system, meaning that we solicited the help of, uh, folks in the Boston area to collect clues. And so the way you can think about a clue is that if you are facing the bus stop, the clues tell you what's to the left and what's to the right of the bus stop. And so we will articulate, you know, two, two spots to the left of the bus stop is a bench and then there's a telephone pole and then there's the bus stop. And then to the right of the, tel uh, to the, right of the bus stop, uh, there's a sidewalk and then there's the curb. And so by using the voiceover technology to list out all of the clues to the left and the right, someone who's visually impaired, who's using a walking cane to walk down the street, they can actually feel those clues as they walk down the street and they'll know, oh, if I'm feeling the curb, I've definitely passed it. I've gone too far. I should turn around. And feeling backwards, if I see the bench or I see the telephone pole, they'll get a sense of where they are spatially, even without having a visual map rep representation. And so uh, we did a lot of research in terms of different ways we could actually solve this problem uh, from uh, kind of voiceover maps with your finger to trying to spatially position things on screen. And uh, this was actually the technique that worked uh, incredibly well in, in our studies. 
And I noticed from some of your sample screenshots that if you're approaching a stop, it tells you, you know, if the street is on the left or if the street is on the right. And then it gives very concrete examples. And I'm just reading here from one of your screenshots. Before the stop, there's a bench. And closer to the stop, there's a garbage can. These are very concrete clues. So how did you come up with that vocabulary? Yeah, we we uh, explored, and again, we explored both sides because this is a crowdsourced product. We wanted to make sure that people got it right. And uh, in the early versions of the product, uh, we had uh, free text and we allowed people to enter in kind of whatever clues they wanted. Uh, we experimented and talked about audio clues where people could literally try to describe uh, the scene and, and what was to the left and the right. And by having uh, the clues be a finite set of very discrete things, it makes it much more, um, uh, much easier to process the data and much easier to present those clues back to uh, the person using the product. And so there are certain clues and certain subtleties to the clues and how they're structured. Um, like there's a, a lot of people assume that all buses, bus stops are the same. In fact, they're, they're all very, very different. Sometimes the bus stop is attached to a metal pole. Sometimes it's a wooden pole. Sometimes it's a concrete wall. Sometimes it's a fence. And by having some of the subtlety in the clues, it actually helps people who are visually impaired use all of their senses to find exactly where they're supposed to be for that bus. So who was giving you this data and how did you find those people and get them to volunteer or to to build up this data for you? Yeah, so we, we ran um, a little bit of a competition, certainly within uh, Ray's Labs. We have uh, about 50, 60 employees here in the Boston office. And so we, uh, we kind of ran a, a little bit of a competition internally within our employees, but we also opened it up to uh, the Boston area as a whole. Uh, we got uh, a couple local colleges involved in the effort. And as the clues started to pile up, it started to really make a dent in the progress that we were making. I think there are about 8,000 bus stops in the greater Boston area. Uh, once we started to make progress, people started to seek out the bus stops that didn't have clues. And so there's definitely an element of gamification. Uh, we also got uh, the MBTA, which is our public transit in uh, Boston, to get involved as well. And they were doing a site survey of uh, their bus stops to make sure that they understood where the sidewalks were cracking and what things were in, in disrepair and needed to be updated. And so uh, along with the regular survey, they were also collecting data for um for the Blind Ways project. So we were they were able to tack on because we had made the infrastructure and we had made a lot of our uh, a lot of the product itself and a lot of the APIs open source. They wanted to be able to contribute to that as well. So at a certain point you have to develop screens and you have to have a language of describing the stop and you have to have some sort of interface to represent it. How did you focus down on that and how did you standardize it? Yeah, I mean, it's for, for us, this project, especially 
the the screen design for Blindways, it was very much how we approach other apps, meaning that we wanted to design the screens to be uh, intuitive. We wanted to follow a lot of the elements of the human interface guidelines that Apple had provided because we wanted the product to be similar uh, and recognizable to folks who are familiar with the design patterns on the iPhone. And so we started certainly thinking about the screens and the screen flow and how they connect in very standard ways. Uh, But then we tested every screen with a voiceover. And so we really had a, uh, you can think of it like a script uh, in terms of, okay, well, when I get to this space, what do I want to hear that can give me the right information to make the choices that I need to make? Um, I think thinking about voice user interface, and this is something we're starting to see more and more with products like Alexa and Google Home, um, it forces you to think conversationally about what information is really a priority and what information isn't. Oh, my uh, my friend in the background went off there. <laughs> um, when you're... Uh, when we're thinking about voice interfaces, we want to make sure we're, we're thinking about the priority of uh, that information. When um, we first started designing for the iPhone, it was a constraint, right? You had less screen real estate. You had less uh, things that you could actually put on your screen. And so the constraint forced you to really think about, okay, well, what's most important? And I think when you're thinking about voice user interfaces, it's the same thing. So what, what information does the person really need to hear and what can I truncate or they can tap somewhere else on the screen to get additional information? That makes a lot of sense because when you were going through the icons on the app using voiceover, I imagine it would take me a long time to get to where I wanted to be. So if you have an app that has a lot of buttons and you have to scroll through a bunch of things and wait for the voice to tell you what it is, that, that would be a bad user experience. So yeah. Must be a real big challenge to get your uh, your app drilled down to something that people can use efficiently. Yeah, and I should mention that that people who actively use voiceover use it at about you know five x the speed uh, that I have it tuned to, uh, and so people who who do use it are incredibly fast at it. You know, it's not something that that um, that inhibits their productivity. They're able to really crank through stuff, which uh, is always impressive when I see it. But still, how do you put the app on a feature diet to get it down to just the right amount of information without throwing in extras? Because you talked about the marketing team and the marketing people who really tend to want to have features to promote the app. Yeah, and and, the, and this is where I think storytelling and the purpose of the app is actually the the thing that helps the marketing people and helps the other departments because the thing that differentiates and makes this product special is the story behind it. The audience is unique, how it impacts the Boston community, the way that it's using crowdsourcing information to funnel the application. The the app has gotten incredible press and recognition and a number of cities have reached out to Perkins and we're exploring how to take the product more nationally the product success is really based on its simplicity for the end user and then the storytelling and the marketing is able to tell. And I think once folks start to understand that having a very clear and concise product vision actually helps product teams, feature teams, and developer teams focus on the excellence of the product rather than an endless stream of features. Um, and for us, it was the same way. There are there was a bunch of features that didn't make it into the product uh, because we're saying, well, wouldn't it be great if 
you know, you could know when your bus was approaching and you could, wouldn't it be great if this other feature happened? And some of those features made it into the product and some of those didn't. And so there is always more. And again, if you think about the depth of the iPhone, it does so many things, um, you know, within the bounds of a single application, you can do a lot of things as well. And so we, we had to prune our efforts to make sure we're executing on the product vision and not just creating additional features on top of it. So I'm curious how you trim the features down because a lot of us have been in environments where, you know, every, the product owner, whoever's building it wants all these features. And at some point you're development limited, but in this case, you're not only development limited because you, you probably have time to do them or maybe budget, but sure. you just don't want to do them. How does that conversation go? Do you have like one voice of reason or can groups get together and determine that this is not something that should be in the product? Uh, you know, we, we do use, um, uh, you know, it, within the Scrum methodology, uh, there are stakeholders or people who kind of have a say in terms of the product decision. We have uh, product managers who help prioritize the different possible things we could be working on. And by really uh, having a joint vision of what this product is supposed to do and who it's supposed to be for, understanding kind of um, the the schedule and the constraints that the engineering team has to ship the product on time at a high level of quality, you know, we can make trade-offs of do we want to spend more of our time and resources on usability and fine-tuning? Do we want to spend it more on features? And really, what do we collectively believe is going to deliver the most value to the end users? Um, the really nice thing about this product is we were so focused on the usability and making sure that we were getting real feedback from end users using the product that it was less contentious in terms of which features we wanted to go focus on. We wanted to make sure we were getting it right and that at the end of the day, people were able to find their bus stop or they weren't able to find their bus stop. And that was kind of, uh, quote, unquote, the high order bit, the thing that, that everyone was aligned with. Every other feature that wasn't really well aligned with that was bonus. And so, um, you know, yeah, we had nice onboarding screens. We thought about how the clue collection could happen, how some of the gamification could happen, but the team was very well aligned with prioritizing the user experience for the person trying to find the bus stop. I want to ask about something kind of tangential to what you've been talking to. You've talked about clue collection You've talked about gamification, but how do you go about sanitizing that data when you're dealing with crowdsourcing? Because some of the data is going to be very good, but you're also going to have data that's flawed or, you know, ridiculous or... You know, you can't always count on the kindness and perfection of the people who are crowdsourcing for you. How do you deal with that? Yeah. So for this product, uh, and we explored a lot of different ways we could crowdsource. And I mentioned some of them from free text to audio clips and things like that. And we ruled out uh, a number of those because they were too complex and they would introduce a lot of noise and a lot of manual effort to screen and scrub the data. Uh, we settled on fairly uh, fairly constrained uh, data that could be input into the system in terms of a clue. Uh, and so there were 
a number of different things that could be to the left or could be to the right of a bus stop. And so a lot of the usual suspects from uh, telephone poles to benches to subway, subway kind of huts or over, uh, you know, uh, rain, rain shelters and things like that. And so we had a number of those. Uh, and then we wanted to make sure that that, that set of things that we were choosing uh, in the clues was sufficient to service, you know, the vast majority of bus stops uh, that we were trying to get. Uh, in that, we also built a feedback loop for really ascertaining whether that clue was helpful or not helpful. Uh, there's a number of features that we wanted to build that are kind of in the backlog in terms of how do you continue to close the loop. Uh, there was an uh, a related project uh, that was done in the Boston area called Citizens Connect, where uh, an individual could take a photo of either a pothole or graffiti in the city, and it would dispatch a work order to city officials to then come, you know, fix the pothole or remove the graffiti and then close the loop to notify the person who originally took the photo that that uh, pothole or that graffiti was repaired. And so there's a bunch of things that we have kind of uh, as part of a long-term vision to do similar closing the loop with clue givers uh, to make sure that they feel rewarded for taking the effort to supply the clue. And so there's some basics that are in the product now that have really allowed us to roll out the product in the Boston area. And like I said, we're, we're rolling it out in other cities as well, but there's a lot of things that we could do to continue to um, to close the loop and make people feel empowered by uh, helping their community. Very cool. So anything we should cover you want to get to before we get to the picks? Uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm having fun. This is great. Okay. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's get to the picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use, it works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Erica, what do you have for us? As usual, I'm going to go with uh, media. And this week is Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. It's a book, and it's just a wonderful read. It's a mystery. It's science fiction. It is a take on weird cultures and i thoroughly enjoyed it awesome so i've got one pick i've got a blog post that i was reading through this week i've been just messing around with swift just trying to build a command line app and there's a guy who did a nice little walkthrough about what we need to do to set up a new app for the command line because i've been doing 
Xcode, iOS type stuff for a long time, but just a real quick walkthrough to get you working with command line stuff using the package manager and how to do that. So if you want to dip your toes in that, uh, it's a great little overview. It's by Swift by Sundell. Cool. Like, uh, and I'll put that link in the show notes. I have uh, a couple picks. I'm not a book reader. I mean, I like books, but I don't read them on paper. I tend to listen to them on Audible and audiobooks, and I tend to read a lot of kind of I'll call them businessy books, uh, and so I've uh, put a put a number of them on LinkedIn. But uh, a couple of uh, my uh, more favorites that I've been re- referring to more frequently. Um, there's one called "The Five Dysfunctions of a Team" uh, by uh, uh, Patrick Lacioni. And it really talks about how teams can be uh, more functional, how to identify some of the dysfunctional elements in team mechanics when you're trying to get something done and uh, maybe your team's not cooperating and trying to identify really why why is there a trust issue or why is there um, kind of uh, some of the things, some of the politics that you may see. Uh, And the other one that I've been enjoying is uh, Work Rules by uh, Laszlo Bach. He's an ex-Googler. and he was uh, SVP of people operations at Google, and he kind of talks through some of the tips and tricks of creating a work culture and how uh, that doesn't necessarily require uh, Google-sized dollars and checkbooks to make happen. So that's a good one. Are you aware that there is, I think, more than one service, but at least one service out there that summarizes business books? So you don't actually have to read the whole book. They'll just give you an abstract on it that you can read in about 10 minutes. I'm sure, but it, it's similar to, <laughs> yeah, there's there's certainly no shortage of uh, tools that will abbreviate either business books or, you know, when I was in college, people would have cliff notes. And I think the, the key is uh, trying to identify business patterns or things that other CEOs are running across and asking how can you apply it to your business or the products that you're working on. Very cool. I, I've, I have seen those apps. They're on my Facebook timeline. I must have been like <laughs> out as a business book reader without much time, which is kind of true. But <laughs> anyway, but Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Um, you know, yeah, really thanks for having lot. me. A lot of fun. Um, yeah. So if people want to get in touch with you, how can they? Uh, if they want to get in touch with me, they can follow me on Twitter at GRAIZ, R-A-I-Z. Uh, or they can check out our website, raiselabs.com, R-A-I-Z-L-A-B-S. Very cool. So that's our show for this week. We'll see you all next week. And thanks a lot, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.